Well, of course, you've probably noticed that uh, at each service that we have, whether it's Sunday morning or evening or even Wednesday night, we always extend an invitation to the congregation. Now, we do this after we, you know, after we, um, um, we do this so often, rather, that sometimes we might forget why we do this. You know, one of those things that you do over and over again, you kind of forget why. Why are we doing this? What's this all about? That's why I would like to talk about the invitation and why we invite people to come to the front of the auditorium, usually for four main reasons. One, we invite non-Christians to be baptized. Two, we invite unfaithful, sinful Christians to be restored. Three, we invite those needing prayer to receive the prayers of the elders on their behalf, the elders in the church. And four, we invite Christians who have not yet done so to come forward and identify themselves with our congregation. There may be other types of invitation, but those usually are the four things that we urge the congregation or the people attending to respond to. Now, if you go back in time to the first century church, I don't know if we could transport back, if they did it exactly in the way we do it, extending an invitation, then a song. I don't know if that was exactly the style they did it in. However, if you look carefully through the New Testament, you would find many examples of each of these invitations being made to people at one time or another. Jesus always challenged his audiences to respond, and so did the apostles when they began to preach. Nothing new there. For example, the invitation to be saved, to repent and be baptized, to come forward and do that. In Acts chapter 2, after preaching about the death and the resurrection of Christ, Peter finishes his lesson by pleading with his listeners to accept Jesus in order to um, obey the gospel. And in Acts 2 he says the following, I'll get there in a second. Acts chapter 2 verse uh, 40 I believe it is, he says, and with many other words he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. That's Peter. That's Peter. He's already preached the gospel. He's already explained what he wants people to do in order to respond. In 238 he says, you know, repent, be baptized, each one of you in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So he's already told them what to do. But in Acts 40, Luke writes that he kept on exhorting them. He repeated over and over the invitation to respond to his message. And then throughout the book of Acts, we see Paul, uh, the uh, apostle, finish his sermons by encouraging people to obey the gospel and be saved. I pick one example, preaching to Agrippa in Acts chapter 26, verses, uh, in 20, in verse 24. I'll read that passage. It says, while Paul was saying this, In his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I utter words of sober truth, for the king knows about these matters, and I speak to him also with confidence, since I am persuaded that none of these things escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. Then King Agrippa um, do you, Paul says to King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. Agrippa replied to Paul, in a short time you will persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul said, I would wish to God that whether in a short or long time, not only you, but also all those who hear me this day might become such as I am, except 
for these chains. He's talking to kings, leaders, the highest in that society. And what is he doing? Not only preaching the gospel to them, but he's, you know, he's pleading with them. He's exhorting them. He's offering them the invitation that very day to believe in Jesus Christ. So when the gospel is presented, it is incomplete unless a response to it is called for. I mean, asking for a response to the message is part of the message. You see, that's the point I'm making. So every time we preach, we call on non-Christians to believe in Jesus and repent of their sins and be baptized just like the apostles did in the first century. If we are to be a New Testament church doing things in you know, Bible ways, well in the Bible they preached and they invited people to respond. Well in 2014 we preach and we invite people to respond. The second invitation is the invitation to be restored. Now that Christians, even mature Christians, sin, that was also a basic teaching of the apostles. A lot of the epistles deal with the sins committed by Christians and what they needed to do about it. John's epistle is very explicit about how Christians should deal with their weaknesses and sins. So if you have your Bibles, go over to 1 John chapter 1, 1 John chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. Now here's, remember what we're talking about, the response of Christians who have sinned. Okay? So in verse 5, John says, this is the message we have heard from Him and announced to you that God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. So John establishes God as the standard for perfection and sinlessness. He goes on to say in verse 6, if we say that we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So remember the we here. Who are we? Christians. He's talking to Christians. He says, if we claim some kind of privileged relationship with God, but we continue to live a worldly and sinful life, we are then liars and the claim we make about having a relationship with God is false. So he continues in verse 7, but if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. So he says, if we claim a relationship with God through Christ, and that's what walking in the light is, it's not perfectionism. Some people think that's being perfect. We can't be perfect, so that's not what he's asking us. Walking in the light is walking, having a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. If that's what you have, then he says, the blood of Christ purifies us and we are enabled to have a privileged relationship with God. In other words, we are sinners, yes. But because we have a faith relationship with God, the blood of Christ purifies us from our imperfections. So then John explains this in another way, in another more practical way, in verse 8. He says, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. In other words, if we think we never sin or we claim we are pure, we're deceiving ourselves and we cannot be trusted as those who speak the truth. Ones who claim sinlessness by some spiritual exercise or through self-will, 
These people, he says, are deluded in their thinking and they're not teaching the gospel according to Christ. You know, the biggest you know, argument that non-Christians have against Christians, oh, you guys, you think you're perfect, you think you're, you, know, you think you're better than everybody, and the answer to that is no. No. The only difference between you and me is that your sins are not forgiven and my sins are, but we're both sinners. That, that's, that's the major difference. So ones who claim sinlessness by some spiritual exercise or through self-will are deluded in their thinking. That's not the gospel according to Jesus. And then in verse 9 he says, if, here's the, here's the thing, if we confess our sins, see he takes it for granted that we're going to sin, but he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if we, still talking about Christians, if we acknowledge that we are sinners and confess our wrongs, Jesus' sacrifice is continually at work, continuously keeping us pure in God's eyes. So the acknowledgement of sin is a prerequisite for receiving grace and forgiveness and purification. So let's finish verse 10, this section. He says, and if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. In other hand, on the other hand, rather, if we continue to delude ourselves by claiming we are sinless or that we don't need his sacrifice, well, I don't need Jesus. I had a person say that to me once. I had a person say that to me once. She was a woman. She says, oh, I don't need Jesus. I don't need somebody to die for my sins. I don't need anybody. And I said, really? I said, how come? She says, well, I, I keep the law. And she really believed that, that she kept the law. She falls into this category here. So if on the other hand we continue to delude ourselves by claiming we are sinless or we don't need the sacrifice, then we do two things. One, we make God out to be a liar because He has said that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. Either He's a liar or you're a liar. And secondly, we confirm that His word, His truth, His gospel is not really a part of us. We do not speak for God or know His word if we claim to be sinless and, know, and have no need of Christ. Everybody in this room needs Jesus Christ. Those who have repented and, in, and, and have been baptized, you still need Jesus Christ today to keep you saved. And those who have not done so, they need Him for obvious reasons that I've mentioned. Now don't forget, in 1 John, he's talking to Christians. Christians who for some reason or other think that they are no longer in need of Christ or His sacrifice. Or maybe Christians who may have found some other different ways to be right with God. For example, some may think that because they have become Christians, they can do whatever they want and God doesn't care or He overlooks their faithlessness and worldliness. You know, once you're saved, you're always saved. Isn't that right? No need to worry about sin. Isn't that the idea? And the other end of the spectrum, there may be some Christians who have begun to feel that they're no longer good enough to be disciples of Jesus. That's really sad. Perhaps their struggles against sin have so discouraged them that they want to quit. And that surely is Satan's lie. You never make it. You're not good enough. Well, you, the stuff that you do, the things you think of, you're, you're a Christian. How could you call yourself a Christian? When you hear that being said in your head, ask yourself the question, who is talking to me? I can tell you right now, it's not Jesus talking to you. He'll never say to you, quit. 
He'll never say to you, you're not good enough. That's the other guy. That's the serpent talking to you. So to the ones who don't worry about sin and think God doesn't care, John says that you cannot continue the works of darkness and claim to be a Christian at the same time. If you do, you're a liar and you're just fooling yourself. You need to repent. You need to acknowledge your sin. You need to return walking in the light with Jesus. And then to the ones who are crushed by their guilt and their failure, John reminds them that so long as they acknowledge their failings and their need for Jesus as sacrifice, God will provide it. The cross of Jesus is effective so long as we acknowledge our need and our trust in Him. Now this is where the invitation, you, you may have forgotten this sermon is about invitations. This is where the invitation to be restored comes in. Some Christians wander away because, well, because they like sin, because they enjoy the world, because they're negligent, because when it comes to their senses, like the prodigal, you know, they, 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 they indulge themselves. And those people need to come back to faithful living. Their coming forward signals to the congregation and to the world that they are returning to a lifestyle that is pleasing to God and in line with His word. They are asking for forgiveness for their falling away. They were walking in one direction and somehow they just went off in another direction. Now they're coming back to continue on the way of discipleship. That's being restored, what that's all about. And then some people wander away because they are discouraged or weak in their faith. They come forward and they're coming forward rather signals that they need help to carry on faithfully. They're asking the same question that the distraught father asked Jesus in order to have the Lord heal his son. You know, he, said, he says, I believe Lord, but please help my disbelief. Sometimes people coming forward to be restored are saying that. I believe, but I'm under such a burden of worry and care and so on and so forth. I need help to continue to believe. That's, that's part of the restorative prayer as well. So when I ask people to come forward to be restored, I'm asking those who have stopped walking in the light with Jesus for whatever reason to come back and renew their Christian lifestyle and dependence on Jesus and only Jesus to cleanse their conscience and also to guarantee their salvation. Mm. I remember once myself going forward and my going forward had nothing to do with I had abandoned Christ. My going forward had to do with my faith was so weak. I was getting beat up spiritually every day, you know, feeling guilty about the past and so on and so forth. You know, and I, didn't, I, I wanted to quit. You know, and so this is before I began to preach. And I went forward. Marvin Phillips actually was the guy who was preaching. Marvin Phillips was preaching. And I went forward and they said, what, what are you coming forward for? And I said, because I need help and I need my faith strengthened so that I can just keep going. Never mind going to heaven so I can just keep going for another day. And they said, all right, brother, we'll pray for you. And that prayer, that prayer worked. Because then I went on to become a preacher and never looked back after that. You can never discount the power of prayer of righteous men. Never, never discount it. It might be in humble circumstances, 10 people, there's noise, babies crying, you know, so on and so forth. You think, oh, you know, this can't be God, it's too human. Don't ever discount the power of the brethren praying for you. Amen. Number three, the invitation to receive prayer. 
James wrote in his epistle, is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. James 5 verse 14. The Holy Spirit invites us to ask for prayer when we are sick. He encourages us to ask the elders to pray for us um, in, their, in their times. Now the elders are to pray because James later on says in verses 15 and 16 that the prayers offered in faith by righteous people are very effective. There's a relationship here. Hopefully our elders would be such men, faithful men, righteous men, and so they would be the best qualified to pray for our illness. I'm not discounting the prayer of a 12-year-old who wants to pray for me, a, a, a child, you know, but if I've got a choice, I'm going to ask one of the elders first. You see what I'm saying? A faithful and a righteous man. Now you talk about the oil here. Oil in those days was recognized as a medical treatment in that day and was also used very much like flowers are used today. We send flowers to sick people in those days. They anointed with oil as a way of cheering the individual. James encourages elders to minister with prayer primarily, but also with whatever treatment and encouragement they can. Today, elders still pray and encourage, but we leave the treatment to the doctors and the medical professionals. When we invite people to come for prayer, it is with the intention that the elders will pray for those who are suffering from whatever ailment. Why do we think that this is a good thing? Because James, through the power of the Holy Spirit, tells the church that's what they ought to do when they are ill. The elders will go to your bedside if that is necessary, but they can also offer prayer on your behalf or those you love while we gather here for worship as well. The effectiveness of the praying is based on faith and righteousness, not whether the prayer is offered in the church building, in the hospital, or in the home. Are you sick, the Bible says? Are you weary, the Bible says? Then come and receive the prayers of the elders. And then the other invitation, the fourth one, the invitation to place membership. You know, perhaps one of the most controversial things we do is invite people you know, to identify with the congregation, place membership. For those who may not understand, this is where a person or a family who was formerly worshiping with the Lord's church in one place decides to begin worshiping with another congregation <clears throat> in another location on a full-time basis. So we say that a family or an individual places their membership or identifies with their new location of worship. Excuse me. <coughs> a lot of times this is simply done by the person in question requesting to be recognized as members and the leaders identifying or introducing them to the congregation. Now some people claim they have a problem with this because they don't see this being done in the New Testament by anyone, so they, you know, they don't want to do that thing. They see people you know, invited to become Christians and being baptized, yeah, that's in the Bible. They see people being restored from sinfulness and unfaithfulness and many asking for and receiving prayer, oh yeah, that's in the Bible. But they can't find any example of people, quote, placing membership, so they think it is a man-made practice and not a biblical one. Brother Mel Fettrell wrote a, an interesting article about this and lists the following reasons why placing membership is not only important, but biblical as well. First of all, he says, it's important for reasons of involvement. 
The Bible recognizes the local congregation as the only organization ordained to do the Lord's work on earth. Walmart has more stores and more personnel, but they have not been given the job of preaching the gospel. The job of preaching the gospel has been given to the church. That's our job. Now, if one is not part of that local congregation, how can they do the Lord's work? Brethren you know, who simply drift from one congregation to another without making a commitment to be loyal in attendance and service to one particular congregation rarely become involved in service and fellowship and other activities. Secondly, it's important for oversight purposes. Elders are charged with the responsibility of overseeing the welfare of the souls in the congregation. Hebrews 13.7. Of course, elders are not responsible for every soul that walks through the doors of the local assembly, right? I mean, some people are just passing through. You know, we're traveling through on our way to Texas. We stop for worship. But the elders are not responsible, in a sense, for the souls of those people. Some people are Christians visiting from other congregations, visiting my mom, my son. You know, the elders are not over those people in that sense. And some are non-Christian guests. Elders cannot watch out for the souls of those who do not indicate their intention of being part of the local church family. Of course, the elders must make sure that new members are Christians, according to the words of Christ, and are not those who may have caused trouble somewhere else and are bringing division into our own family. The only way that the elders and the congregation can know if they are responsible for the oversight and ministry to a particular person or family is through their acknowledgement that they want to be part of our family. And finally, it's important because of the biblical example that we have. In Acts 9.26 we see Saul trying to join himself to the disciples who were meeting in Jerusalem. Now in Acts 19.22 we learn that after his conversion Saul worked mightily with the brethren in Damascus, a city north of Jerusalem. And after leaving Damascus to go to Jerusalem he tries to place membership, if you were, to join himself, to identify, to be accepted by the brethren in Jerusalem. They refused at first because they were afraid on account of his past reputation as a persecutor of the church. We don't want this guy. This guy kills Christians. Why should we want him as a member here? Eventually Barnabas spoke for him and he was accepted into the fellowship of the brethren at Jerusalem. Imagine if they would have rejected him all the time and kept him out, this great servant of God. Imagine. Now it's no accident that the Holy Spirit has preserved this small incident in the Bible in order to teach us a lot of lessons. One of these lessons is the clear and simple pattern to follow when one leaves one congregation and join another. In many of his letters, Romans chapter 16, for example, verse 7 and following, Paul encourages brethren to receive and consider as part of their church family various Christians that are going from one place to another. You know, when I left Canada originally and the congregation in Montreal to attend Oklahoma Christian, I, you know, Lisa and I and the kids, we wanted to find a church to attend. And so the brethren in Montreal gave me a letter of introduction which I gave to the elders of the Edmond congregation at the time when we decided to place membership there. And we did that so that the elders would know not only what my intentions were, but also something about my reputation because they didn't know who I was. Now we could cite a lot of other reasons 
But it just makes sense that the local church needs to know who is part of its family. Of course, we appreciate visitors and guests who attend with us regularly, but there's a difference between company and family. Company you treat well. Company you make sure that they're welcome and their, their time with you is good. What did I do? What did I do? Am I pointing to company? Family's different, right? They, they get to clean the floors and you know, paint the house and do that kind of stuff. <laughs> of course, we appreciate everyone, but there is a difference between company and family. Call it what you want. Placing membership, extending the right hand of fellowship, identifying with, joining, whatever it is. The elders and the congregation need to know who is part of the local family and the invitation to place membership is an opportunity for those who wish to, uh, to do that um, uh, to come forward and make their feelings known. Well, I've tried very quickly here to uh, make an effort to shed a little bit of light on the practice that we do at each of our services. Like I say, we do it so often we forget that perhaps people don't know why we do that, that there's a reason for it. And that brings me to the final point in the lesson. Why do we do it at every service? Why every? Why not once a month? You know, I catch, why every service? Because not all churches do it that way. We do it this way because the elders insist on it. Every service, every devo, there's an invitation. We do it every time because first of all, there's always the chance that somebody's heart has received the word and they're ready to obey the gospel. We want to give them the chance and the opportunity to come forward. Very easy, the, the evil one will take that seed that's just sprouting, ready, the urge to come forward. And if there's no, no time, no moment, then the person will say, well, maybe next time. And sometimes there is no next time. So we want every time to have that opportunity. Secondly, there's always the chance that someone's heart has been moved to come back to their first love, Jesus Christ. We want to give them a chance and an opportunity to be restored. Thirdly, there's always the chance that someone's heart may be burdened by sorrow for many reasons and they need the prayers of the elders and the church. We want to give the chance, the opportunity for everyone who needs prayer to reserve it. And finally, there's always the chance that somebody's heart wishes to be joined to all the other believing hearts of the saints that gather here at the Choctaw congregation. We want to give them the opportunity to become part of our family in an official in an official way. You're part of the body, there's no arguing about that, but part of this particular family that the elders might feel and know you and feel the responsibility for your souls. There's no shame in coming forward. There's no shame in responding to any of these invitations. On the contrary, it's always a sign of victory. It's always a sign of spiritual growth a witness that God's spirit has triumphed over the spirit of sin and pride in our hearts. Remember, the voice telling you, don't do it. You know, you're listening to the sermon, whatever, and you're thinking, okay, today I'm done with that. I'm coming forward. I'm placing my I'm Today's the day I'm going to be baptized. The voice inside of your head, I go back to that, saying, oh, don't do it. This Sunday, it's raining. You'll be late for lunch. You know? Remember, that's not Jesus' voice. It's never Jesus' voice telling you not to do something that will draw you closer to God. That's not Jesus' voice. So I ask you this morning, what does your heart say? What does your mind say? 
whatever it is, we're here to minister to you in all the ways that we can this morning at this congregation. We sing the song to give you a moment to reflect on the type of things that you need to respond to. And if you do need to respond, we encourage you to come forward as we stand and as we sing the song of invitation.